this final episode of the Against Knowledge section, we're doing a brief exploration of what I think is one of the least understood and yet most important aspects of white evangelicalism and the religious right. As I mentioned a few episodes back, you'd think an episode on opposition to abortion would go along with the material on sexuality, purity, culture, and patriarchy. And it certainly could go there. But in my book, I explored abortion within the broad pushback against integration of white and black students. So here's why. The religious right is the name for this coalition of conservative Protestant ministers starting in the Carter and Reagan years. Before then, it wasn't obvious that conservative Christians should be blindly Republican. The story of the religious right in the 1980s is misunderstood as a battle against reproductive choice, bringing religious conservatives into alliance with the Republican Party. As the historian Randall Balmer has shown, the foundations of the religious right in opposition to abortion is purely a myth. In the 90s, Heritage Foundation co-founder Paul Weyrich once actually admitted to Balmer that the uh, idea to take up abortion actually came late in the 70s, years after Roe v. Wade, when religious right activists needed a cause with more long-term viability than segregated schools. So not after Roe v. Wade in 1973, but way later, Weyrich said abortion was actually suggested by an unknown voice on some conference call in some unknown year. It was sort of a flippant gimmick fueled by careless misogyny, not concern for the fetus. The abortion myth covered for segregationist desire, which means that counterintuitive though it seems, the discussion of abortion belongs here in a section on education more than it belongs in a section on sexuality and gender. This master signifier pro-life was clearly a metonym, just as religious freedom was a metonym for segregation, and we see this in the battle for tax exemptions. Bob Jones University had been a stalwart of Christian conservatism for a half century by the time it came under fire as a segregated university, which threatened its tax-exempt status. A series of events linked the integration of public schools to the legal status of Christian universities. After Brown v. Board, states were given leniency in their integration timelines. As Mississippi integrated in 1969-70 school year, within two years of integration in this county in Mississippi, there were zero white students remaining in the county's schools. So a group of parents sued to deny three of these K-12 schools tax-exempt status, arguing that segregated academies weren't charitable. The resulting case, Green v. Connolly, continued a domino effect running from Brown v. Board to the Reaganite religious right. In 1971, the Supreme Court affirmed a district court's recent decision on the Green v. Connolly case and said the Internal Revenue Code shouldn't give charitable status to segregated private schools. This was at the secondary, the primary and high school level right now, uh, not the university level. So the court was upholding a position the IRS already announced in a two-page ruling that launched conservatives into revolt. And the IRS sent its first inquiry to Bob Jones University in 1970, at which point the school denied entry to African Americans. The changing legal landscape forced the university through a series of stalling tactics, such as admitting a black student to, as a, who was an employee to a short-lived uh, stint as a part-time student. Uh, 
It experimented with admitting black students who were married and enforced rules against interracial dating until the year 2000. The university lost its tax-exempt status in January 1976. The moment was a flashpoint for conservative Christians, but segregation was no longer a viable long-term cause. Another issue was needed. So in the rise of the religious right, Green v. Connolly was the motive, while Roe v. Wade was the cover. In the 1972 and 76 elections, Democrats were actually slightly more pro-life than Republicans, a fact which ceased to be true in all elections but one after 1980. Early Christian opposition to abortion was primarily Catholic, not Protestant. Even the ultra-conservative Southern Baptist Convention adopted a resolution in 1971 supporting abortion access in at least some cases. And just a side note, I'll be using the acronym SBC for Southern Baptist Convention for the next few minutes. Just after the Roe v. Wade decision, the Texas pastor and former SBC president W.A. Criswell told Christianity Today that it wasn't up to him. Quote, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a separate life from its mother that it became an individual person, and it has always therefore seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. End of quote. So this is an SBC pastor giving support to the pro-choice position. Now, it would be a mistake to say as too many claim that Baptists were pro-choice and then turned pro-life, as simple as that. But there was a significant ideological shift at the decade's end. And the SBC shift mirrored the broader conservative about-face on church-state separation over the course of a few interesting years. Baptists are particularly interesting here as a congregation that traditionally supported the separation of church and state. And I'm using Baptists as my example, partly because I'm arguing that today's white evangelicalism simply didn't fully exist yet in the 1970s. And Baptists are the closest thing we have to the mindset or political disposition of what would become white evangelicalism. This is, in many senses, the most independent and conservative crowd. After all, the Southern Baptists literally started off as a breakaway group around the Civil War era, as a church for Baptists who wanted to keep owning slaves. And it's still a very conservative group today. But in the 70s, there was this evolution on issues regarding school prayer and abortion. So his, here's the history of that change. The Southern Baptists... Joint Committee for Public Affairs supported the Supreme Court's ruling against prayer time in schools in McCollum v. Board of Education back in 1948. The SBC passed resolutions against funding for public schools, uh, for public funds for religious schools, over and over again between the end of World War II and Roe. Right, so they are supporting these efforts that keep the church and the state separate. It fully supported this establishment clause until something changed. The fundamentalist wing grabbed power in the late 1970s, and it's actually due to the fundamentalist takeover and purge of moderates that we have data to document the shift because they were interrogating each other, uh, especially after Richard Land took charge of the Christian Life Commission, uh, which is now called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, in 1988. 
The Christian Life Commission began using questionnaires on the topics of public funding for religious schools, an amendment for school prayer, and abortion. And there was a dramatic increase in support for tax credits for religious schools in the, among Baptist pastors in the 1980s. The SBC's six resolutions offering a qualified support for at least some abortion rights stretched from 1971 to 79, at which point they stopped entirely. There is so much history we could explore for the further context in this decade, but one way to think of it is an opposition between two camps. One camp believed the conservative church was best served by a strict separation of church and state, while the theocrats who won the fight believed that theological interests were best served by rooting those interests in secular law. Opinions on abortion were fairly quiet between 1973 and 78, and shifted dramatically in the decade's final two years. The SBC elected its first adamantly anti-choice president, Adrian Rogers, in 1979, and it adopted anti-choice resolution, its first anti-choice resolution that was very clear the following year. In concert with Francis Schaeffer, whose warnings of secular humanism would gain wide audience, the Heritage Foundation co-founder Paul Weyrich helped galvanize a Protestant coalition around abortion. Many early evangelical activists joined the cause. Tim LaHaye of Left Behind fame launched Californians for Biblical Morality. Robert Grant founded American Christian Cause, which published what he called moral report cards for politicians, and these were spread in churches prior to elections. The College Ministry Campus Crusade for Christ founder Bill Bright joined forces with the Heritage Foundation. Along with Schaefer, the future Surgeon General C. Everett Koop produced the anti-choice film series Whatever Happened to the Human Race. Liberty University founder Jerry Falwell published the newspaper Moral Majority Report. Falwell's Moral Majority was the base from which the anti-choice religious right grew. But in 1978, his focus was the child in the school more than the child in the womb. Christians, he warned, must be politically aware of government forces which, quote, affect the vitality and very existence of our churches and Christian schools, end of quote. Nevertheless, this was the same year in which Falwell proclaimed his opposition to reproductive choice for the first time, late in the 70s here. His coalition vehemently opposed the Equal Rights Amendment as well, and since Falwell believed equality uh, between men and women would destroy the traditional family, it made sense that he did not believe in equal rights for women. The pro-life moniker worked. In 1978, an Iowa incumbent Democratic senator who was overwhelmingly projected to win a re-election lost to a Republican running on the pro-life message. Two years later, the moral majority proved successful at defeating Carter and installing Reagan on the same issue. The Johnson Amendment was nearly three decades old by this point. But this archaic rule ostensibly prohibiting nonprofits from endorsing candidates couldn't keep up. The right chose to forget how tax exemptions were revoked under Nixon originally, Nixon the Republican. By the time Pat Robertson and Ralph Reed launched the Christian Coalition in 1989, everyone took for granted that they had always felt great concern for the fetus. So this was a dramatic sea change in just the period of 
1978 to 1980. Evangelicals then shrouded themselves in pro-life rhetoric, and the Christian right was born. White evangelicalism was born. It was more enshrouded in the abortion myth as the white child in the school was rhetorically eclipsed by the child in the womb. Now back to Bob Jones University. It lost its tax exemption status and in its case reached the Supreme Court during the Reagan administration. With only one dissenter, the Supreme Court finally settled the matter and ruled against the school in May of 1983. Segregation was no longer an option for a school that wanted to remain tax-exempt. In a perverse twist, the sole dissenter in that case, William Rehnquist, was rewarded when Reagan promoted him to chief justice soon after. However, the damage was done and the threat was clear enough to conservatives. Today, white students overrepresent in private school enrollment in 43 states. Today, the strongest predictor of white private enrollment is the proportion of black students in the area. In the domain of education, white flight and alternative knowledge remain inseparable. And this is the lesson. This emerging new faith of white evangelicalism was so latently patriarchal that it could casually strip women of reproductive choice, all as part of a coordinated effort to conceal white flight from the school system. And regardless of why people feel this way or that way about abortion today, now you know the roots of the anti-choice movement. <laughs>